0: This episode of Wanderlust Off the Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalized photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi photo book. The brand has over 9,000 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as the photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars, and much more with Siwi. To learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all CWE products when you spend 30 pounds, visit cwe.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Now let's get on with the show.
1: everyone and welcome to Wanderlust Off The Page, a travel podcast designed to help you discover the most fulfilling travel experiences on the planet.
0: From culture and history to nature and wildlife, we're going to be taking you behind the scenes of the magazine to go deeper into our favourite destinations and meet the travel writers, experts and personalities who will bring our stories to life. My name is Lynn Hughes, the founding editor of Wanderlust. And I'm Rosa Fitzgerald, the special features editor at Wanderlust.
1: Now, if you're new to Wanderlust, here's what you need to know. Wanderlust is the UK's leading independent travel magazine, which has been taking the road less traveled since 1993.
0: We've won numerous awards along the way, and to this day, we continue to inspire our audience of curious travelers with each issue of our magazine, as well as our website. Both of these are just filled with off-the-beaten-track experiences and some of the world's most exciting destinations, both near and far. Responsible, conscious and sustainable travel is always at the very heart of everything that we cover. So do
1: be sure to check us out by heading to wanderlustmagazine.com or become a Wanderlust Club member and join our community of serious travellers for just £35 a year. That's about 50 bucks. This will get you six beautiful collectible issues, exclusive member-only competitions and events, access to our entire online archive back to 2010, plus heaps of other benefits.
0: And of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button on the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast as well. For this episode of Wanderlust Off The Page, we'll be heading all the way to the South Atlantic to visit one of the most isolated islands on Earth, South Georgia.
1: Yeah, South Georgia's a haven for extraordinary numbers of wildlife, from penguins to elephant seals. And as we'll hear, it's an indelibly associated with the great explorer, Ernest Shackleton, who passed away there 100 years ago. And so we sent travel writer Mark Stratton on a dream assignment to explore the Shackleton story in this centenary year.
0: Have you been to South
1: Georgia before, Lynn? I must admit, yes, I've been lucky enough to have been there. And I do have to say that it is on my all-time top 10 travel experiences It is incredible, but I'm not going to say too much about it. But uh, let's just say that I wasn't surprised that Mark had an incredible time there, too.
0: Sounds incredible. And in conversation with Mark today is Wonderlust friend, Aaron Miller. So this should really make for a fascinating listen. Let's hear what they have to say.
2: The whistling polar wind shrieks off the bay accelerating the velocity of three overflying skewers. I experience an overpowering aura emanating from a headstone hewn from Edinburgh granite in Gritvicken's cemetery. Watched by a doe-eyed baby fur seal scratching against a tombstone, I feel a synthesis of everything I love about travelling. Remoteness so utterly different to normal life. The power of a journey to transform your senses and exhortation of achieving a lifelong dream. In my reverie, I fumble inside my jacket's pocket and pull out a silver hip flask of whiskey, and as custom dictates, raise a toast under South Georgia's leaden skies. To the boss, I mouth, to Sir Ernest Shackleton.
3: Mark, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful passage. To the boss, he is the boss, isn't he, Ernest Shackleton? The, you know, one of the kind of ultimate explorers and adventures from that kind of golden age of exploration. I'm excited to hear so much about this trip, not just because of the history, but also because of the destination. It's somewhere I've always, always wanted to go. And you write about it so beautifully. You are truly a a brilliant, evocative, and just incredible writer to read. Uh, So it's been a a pleasure dipping into that. But maybe you could set the scene for us a little bit. So for people that aren't familiar where South Georgia is, put us on a map and, and why did you want to travel there? South
2: Georgia is a British Overseas Territory, remains a British Overseas Territory. We're down in the Southern Ocean. We're off the area of sort of the Southern Ocean of South America. We're around 1,300 kilometres north of the Antarctic Peninsula. The Antarctic Peninsula is that finger of land which juts out. It's the most popular place for Antarctic visitors to cruise to. South Georgia is to the south of the Falkland Islands, and it is to the east of the tip of South America. So it's in the Southern Ocean or the Scotia Sea you have to cross to reach it. It's extremely remote. And I think what really appealed about going there is firstly the history surrounding Shackleton, which is what made the island famous, the exploits of actually surviving a catastrophic um, expedition and getting to survival and saving his men, which was incredible. But also, as a great wildlife lover, it's known to be one of the great ecosystems of the world with incredible diversity, and also incredible abundance.
3: Has Ernest Shackleton always been a kind of hero of you? You're a bit of a hero traveler and explorer yourself. But you know, he was the man back in the day, wasn't he? Is that something that's pretty special for you to be able to follow in his footsteps?
2: It's one of those in- inspiring stories, one of those stories you hear and you think, could that really be real? Could they actually have done that? And having been down in that region, my respect for their survival escapade and all of those golden age of heroic explorers, it's just multiplied because the conditions are really hard. I could point back to, I was crossing the Scotia Sea, heading from Antarctica up to South Georgia on this recent trip. And I just went outside. Um, there was about a four to five metre swell there, which is enough to make you feel a little queasy if you haven't got good sea legs. And there was a biting, biting, biting wind. I stood out there for half an hour trying to spot whales. I didn't see any. Well, maybe a few distant blows on the horizon. But, and I was frozen. I was frozen. And you think, well, these men were on the ice and at sea, completely exposed in substandard equipment um, for 18 months. I mean, how on earth could they have done that? It's incredible. So your, your respect does... Uh, and I, th- I think for Shackleton also, there's lessons in life about... And I write this in the article about persevering and carrying on when things get a little bit down. And I, I've used that throughout my career. Sometimes things don't go well when you're traveling or you you get unexpected situations. And there's only two things. You just deal with it or you, you just fall apart. So carrying on and perseverance is something which I'm quite attracted to.
3: I like that as a traveling mantra, you know, as well. It's like... Well, it, you know, it could be worse. We could be trapped under two lifeboats, you know, in, uh, in South Georgia, freezing to death and eating penguins <laughs> to survive. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll get through this. But just to backtrack a little bit for, for people that aren't familiar with that endurance story, you know, maybe you could summarize that a little bit for us. What was that great adventure or that great heroic failure of Ernest Shackleton's?
2: This escapade took place in 19, between 1914 and 1916. Um, Shackleton had had two attempts to reach the South Pole, and he came very close in his second one in 1911. But actually, it was before 1911. In 1911, though, the pole was claimed by Amjutsen, the great Norwegian explorer. So that goal was gone. So instead, Shackleton decided on this This. Great Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition to try and cross the continent via the South Pole. So he did his inimitable fundraising, uh, cajoling and and, and sweet-talking uh, old, old to to hand over their cash for his expedition. He was great at that. And off he sailed. And they first in 1914 ended up, late in 1914, they ended up in South Georgia. And the whalers there, uh, there was Norwegian whaling stations there, at the time they said no don't go down there the Weddell Sea which is where they were going to start the expedition from they said was icebound and uh, you really won't get through but headstrong and obviously with all of his sponsors and expectations of the great British public by now which was at war during World War One, forced him to really to go on and also probably his ego as well and in they sailed And they duly got trapped, the Endurance, um, the ship that was rediscovered this year, sunken in the Weddell Sea. The ship got stuck. They never reached land. They eventually abandoned the ship, the Endurance, uh, and moved on to Ocean Camp, which was an ice pack camp. So they were literally now living on a floating camp before the Endurance sank to the bottom. And then they had to get out of there. Um, They had three lifeboats. Eventually, Moved around by a circulatory current, which rolls around the Weddell Sea. Um, the gyre, as it's called, took them northwards and gave them a chance to get to open water. And they sailed to Elephant Island in their three lifeboats. Elephant Island is an extraordinary place. And I got my first taste of it on this last trip. It, it's harsh, it's barren, it's glaciated and rocky and mean looking, and, but super impressive. And then he realized that nobody was going to find them on Elephant Island. And then himself and five other crew members took to one of the lifeboats the James cared and sailed to South Georgia in one of the great sea journeys of all time. It was a miracle they reached South Georgia, this speck of an island, um, some 1,300 kilometers north. Um, incredible how they made it. Great navigation. Uh, when they arrived, they still faced a few issues. They'd, they'd arrived on the wrong side of the island to the whaling settlements from where they could get help. And the the Shackleton and two of the others, Tom Crean and uh, Frank Worsley, set off and decided they were going to be mountaineers, hammered a few nails in their boots (laughs) for for crampons. Over they went the glaciated interior to get help. And eventually, some months later, um, a ship actually managed to come pick up all of Shackleton's men. And um, all of the men survived, which was remarkable.
3: Miraculous that was. They were... They were definitely built of different stuff back then, was it? I mean, I'm just like hammering nails into boots for crampons and taking up mountain (laughs) mountaineering and you know Antarctic conditions.
2: I just like four and a half months of four and a half months of eating seal and penguin. My God, they did vary their diet with um, baby albatrosses, which apparently uh, tasted a bit like chicken. But doesn't everything that's exotic? So
3: I I don't know if this is true actually. But I heard an anecdote that he arrived. I presume that one of the whaling settlements and steam's coming out of this little cabin and he just kind of bursts open the door and said, I'm Ernest Shackleton, who's won the war? And uh, <laughs> you could just imagine these whalers like, what the, where's this guy come from? You know,
2: They're absolutely <laughs> filthy. Uh, I mean, you know, they were caked in seal fat and soot from burning blubber around the stove and then wash frostbitten. Uh, they must've been in you know, a dreadful, uh, apparently the whaling station manager um, whose door they knocked on, and um, didn't recognize them initially. So
3: And so that's Shackleton's famous story, but you were actually there on this trip that timed with another kind of big anniversary and, and another story that's perhaps less well known.
2: So the anniversaries this year, well, well, firstly, firstly the endurance was discovered by an expedition and that was very much an expedition to mark the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's death because he died in 1922, um, He decided to have one more expedition. His health was definitely failing. He was in his late 40s. He put together some of his old muckers from the um, earlier trip. And they sailed with this idea of mapping some of the Antarctica's coast. They sailed down to South Georgia. And literally the day he arrived, the evening he arrived, he died of a heart attack. Um, He'd been hiding a heart condition for some years and all throughout his career of expeditionary um, treks, he, he did have a, a heart condition. So it's remarkable, really, that you could persevere with that, with that issue. But he did. But it, unfortunately, it took its toll, and uh, he died when he arrived, arrived in South Georgia. And hence, he is buried on the island, as uh, as I mentioned by opening reading. Um, extremely powerful place to go and visit. I never felt my spine tingle anywhere like visiting the cemetery in Britvican.
3: Yeah, and I I want to get there. But first, you know, maybe take us to Punta Arenas and the the start of the journey. Like, what is that place like? And and what's the ship like? And, you know, what does it feel like to be boarding and setting off on such a grand adventure?
2: It's very exciting. Every time I've had a chance to go to the far south, to Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, um, you know what's lying ahead. Potentially, yes, very rough seas. But also very very special wildlife that as human beings we haven't quite managed to mark up yet so it's a unique place where you do on every trip get different and thrilling encounters so you sail out of Punta Arenas which is a really nice little historic town in the the top of the Chilean fjords and you sail down and eventually you enter the, the famous Beagle Channel and that is the conjurer let's say to take you out into the notorious Drake's Passage which is around about a... So on this trip, I, I basically, I did, a, I did a circular loop. Um, the ship, uh, very modern, and lovely ship, went down from Chile. It went down to Antarctica. Then it, we ventured east to South Georgia, carried on a little bit north to the Falkland Islands, and then came back west and back into Punta Arena, So it's a cir- circular tube route.
3: I'm sort of worried about the Drake's passage a little bit. Did you have it bad, or or did you find the? Because isn't it? It's like the Drake Shake or the Drake Lake.
2: I had the Drake Lake this time, and I, I have done the Drake <laughs> Shake. I haven't heard that term, Aaron, but but uh, <laughs> I've I've certainly been tossed around. I do have good sea and I'm, I'm quite I'm quite lucky. Yeah, no, it was a relatively good crossing, but it did get choppy. We got a good swell um, when we were leaving Elephant Island, leaving Antarctica to head to South Georgia, and there was a significant swell significant swell there. I find it quite thrilling actually.
3: I've got another writer friend of mine who he was traveling on the Drake Passage and he was sitting in the in the, like the restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, the cafeteria of the of the ship when a, a huge swell suddenly took off and his glass of wine shot off his table and into the face of the person sitting next <laughs> to him and like without missing a beat the person just licked his lips and went "Murla?" <laughs> <laughs>
2: I remember on a really, really rough sea that they, they, they the waiter serving me like a soup, <laughs> and literally we had a great lurch, and he just poured <laughs> it all over the floor.
3: Who are you traveling with, and what's what's kind of life life like on board? This company
2: is called Aurora Expeditions, and life on it, it was a fellow. Look, put it like this: it was a relatively small boat for Antarctica. There's a size limit on the boats that can go down there, and life on an expedition. Well, we had a, I think we had around about 75, 80 people on the on the trip you get into a routine. When you're in Antarctica, you land on a couple of occasions every day in the morning, the afternoon, you have lectures and you have your meals. And it's great. I mean, you're always constantly looking out for wildlife, whether it's albatrosses swooping along the boat or whether you're whale watching or and when you're down in Antarctica, obviously penguins. And yeah, it's very exciting. It's a very dynamic environment. There's always something to capture your interest.
3: Well, speaking of wildlife, I mean, you had quite a few incredible experiences but we're about to hear now a a passage that is honestly maybe one of the greatest wildlife moments I've heard and it was a pleasure to read about it so let's hear it direct from you right now In successive landings at
2: Gold Harbour and Salisbury Plain we run into 150,000 pairs of king penguins plus 50,000 gentoos Approaching Gold Harbour's shore, I hear their collective cacophony and flinch at the assorbic pong of fishy guano that leaves tears in your eyes. Although for fellow traveller, Rochelle from Sydney, her tears are from weeping for joy. This is what South Georgia does to you. It overwhelms your senses. Upon splashing ashore, I stand perplexed where right to point my camera. There are a million unbelievable photographs. Eventually, I walk down to the shoreline, where, like a D-Day landing, penguins splash land ashore, glistening clean, then tilt their heads skywards and honk like contralto geese to let their chicks know they have a belly full of krill. Dinner is on its way, kiddo.
0: one of the best things about travel is that so often the memories you create last for a lifetime, don't they? And one of the best things about our sponsor, CUE, is that they can help us to relive those special memories and keep them all in one place in a beautiful photo book for us to look back on time and time again. So have you got any favourite travel albums, Lynn, or photo books? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, I'm sitting somewhere where I've got photo albums next to me from travels from over the years, including exploring New Zealand, Zealand from north to south, and face to face encounters with gorillas sitting there. Oh, wow. It really brings it back that there's nothing like them, really, you know, particularly when you look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so, actually, my, one of my newest resolutions this year is to make photo books of some of the more memorable recent travels as well you know those over the last few years because it really does make you live those experiences again doesn't it
0: It really does. And, you know, I love nothing more than when I go home to see my parents, just to look through those old travel albums from when we were children and having a look back at those memories. And it it really just helps to bring those memories back and make them really fresh again, doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And of course, a photo book makes a great present for a loved one as well.
0: Yes, definitely. And I think now, especially when we have, you know, social media, it's so easy just to flick through them all online. But it really isn't the same as having that really nice experience of looking through those printed versions and and holding those memories in your hand is just makes it so much more special so whichever travel memories you would like to savor whether it's a recent trip or your first ever adventure Siwi can help and a Siwi photo book makes for the perfect keepsake so be sure to head over to their website and make the most of their exclusive offer and save 25% on all seaweed products when you spend £30. For all the details and for full T's and C's, go to uk forward slash Wanderlust. That's C-E-W-E.co.uk forward slash Wanderlust. Right, now let's get back to the show.
3: My gosh, what does it feel? To, I, like, I can't even picture that. What does it feel like to be surrounded by 150,000 pairs of these penguins? It's just a dream. It just sounds like a dream. What I loved about this was that it, back in, back
2: in uh, January, I, when I couldn't get to Antarctica, I spent three weeks just backpacking around um, Patagonia. And I came to a colony called Porto Tombo, where there was a million penguins. They were very much tucked away in the brush and they were very active, um, it was just the end of breeding season. But this, it's, it's just full-on animated. They're coming in and out of the water. They still had many of their babies, big fluffy brown fur coats. I think I described them as looking like glam rockers. <laughs> and the noise is incredible. The adults are pulling their heads to the sky and calling their chicks when they come ashore. And obviously the smell. The one thing you don't want to do in Antarctica, and the greatest hazard for me in Antarctica, or well, this is the sub-Antarctic region, is stepping in penguin dumb. <laughs> it stinks. There's particular degrees of pong. If they're dieting or fishing on small fish, that's bearable. If it's krill, it's the, this sticky, awful, bright red poo. It's terrible. And I, I promise you, you take your, when you get home, even if you haven't touched it or, or actually come in contact with it, you, you end up washing everything twice. And <laughs> you still have in your mind this faint, long lingering odor. They're the smelliest animal on the planet. I'm sure of it.
3: Who would have thought like these cute little glam rock baby penguins, and there they, there they are d- dropping these bombs all over the, all over the place. Do you know the
2: worst well, the worst thing, Aaron, is is when you're there, you'll see a bird. It's a lovely little bird, um, but it's got a slightly slightly odd looking vulture head called the snowy sheep's bill. And basically what it does is it follows the penguins around and tucks into their guano once they once they've deposited it. Um, looking for looking for extra fishy nutrients <laughs> and you are
3: thinking, oh my god it smells bad enough how can you be eating that but they do and
2: that's it they're survivors
3: so that's like way down there on the kind of reincarnation level isn't it you've got to you've got to done something seriously bad to end up uh, following penguins around eating their smelly <laughs> krill poo <laughs> um, so but this this experience is one of a number of incredible wildlife experiences that you had there and it ha- actually happened a little bit further along in the trip but you also write about this moment of get, having your first glimpse of Antarctica and, and what that feels like. Could you describe that for us? This was
2: my fourth time down there and it's never that thrill has never, never diminished. On this occasion, and I think on most occasions, you arrive there and it'll be dark and you can see the shadowy outlines of perhaps large icebergs or the, the actual landmass itself or the islands. Then in the morning you wake up. I, I, I write in the article about It's like Christmas. You're like a child waking up on Christmas morning, rushing outside and hoping there's snow. Well, there's a shed load of snow in Antarctica. (laughs) There there really is. And you you go outside and perhaps um, not completely dressed as fully warm as you should be because you're so excited to get outside. You avoid slipping on the deck because they've been very iced over and the railings have iced over. I promise you, if you put your hand on the railing, the metal railings for any period of time, it'll stick to them. And then you just have this this is biting cold this is fresh revitalizing environment of shining ice and um, and steely water and 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 snow and and then a penguin bombs pass. And I, again, I, wrote, I write in the piece that that's when you really know you're in Antarctica, when you start seeing a number of penguins, what the porpoising it's called, they, they sort of skim along the water's top like a bouncing bomb. So, um, and then you really know you're there and, and it's thrilling. And then stuff starts happening. Um, you'll start to see lots and lots of different birds and you'll start to see whales and in particular humpback whales, which are one of my favourites. There's great numbers of them down in that region. So
3: You did see a bunch of them. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But as as you're talking there, it just strikes me. I mean, you're someone who's been lucky to travel all over the world and and see many different types of landscapes and ecosystems. Do you think there's something special in being somewhere that's truly wild in the sense that, you know, it, it hasn't been kind of contaminated by human touch yet by this kind of touch of industry and i mean there has obviously been a lot of industry down there but it's not somewhere where we live or can necessarily survive do you think there's there's somewhere you know that there's something about truly wild places like that that give you a different feeling than than anywhere else I think so, and particularly for
2: me, when there, I mean, I've been to very remote places on the globe where there's very little wildlife, like, for instance, some years ago, I joined an expedition to walk across the world's hottest desert. It was utterly devoid of life, it was a great experience, but when an environment, an ecosystem is so animated, um, so brimming full of life, and where you see nature and wildlife, you know, rules the roost. It's a really special thing and we're just one species on a planet and um, I think we often have scant regards for other species and to actually feel that they are ruling that environment, they are adapted to that environment and we are just visitors is a very special thing. There's just stuff happening all the time. You know, whether, it, whether it's a sort of leopard seal brutally shredding uh, a penguin, which is is not great watching if you're a, a penguin lover, or a humpback whale or a orca spy hopping, poking its head out out of the water. It's you can just expect the unexpected. For instance, you, you know, I, I I contrast that to perhaps going for a walk in the UK. I, I'm based down on Dartmoor, and you might see a few butterflies and a few birds, uh, which is great, and uh, it's a lovely environment. But you don't expect extraordinary things to happen right in front of your eyes and it, it does really reinforce your your feeling that you you want to work to try and protect those environments and um and, and advocate
3: for them mm. and and there are certain places like that where it, it just reminds you how extraordinary the planet really is and, and how rich and, and varied it is and like you say want to try and advocate to protect it which is something you write about in the piece as well which i think is, is really important to mention that Although we think of this as, you know, a pristine, untouched wilderness, in fact, going back to Ernest Shackleton's days, it was devastated really in terms of kind of whale and seal population. Yes. Was that something that you found particularly poignant while you were down there?
2: Yeah, definitely so. And, and and I think, and I write again in the article, that we often have a, um, a nostalgic, rose-tinted uh, view of travel saying, oh, this is great, but it, it must have been amazing a century ago, 200 years ago, et cetera. But actually, I, I, I suspect, well, I, well, I'm absolutely certain wildlife-wise that What you see now, particularly on the sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia, is something that Shaukuddin wouldn't have experienced. He wouldn't have experienced the density of wildlife because uh, first the sealers from the 1700s, 1800s um, devastated the seals, the elephant seals, the Antarctic fur seals, were were almost wiped out. And the whales, obviously, there was this brutal um, whaling industry and they reeled in some 175,000 whales, in South Georgia, including many of our giant whales like blues and fins. So it would have been a landscape um, which would have been less colored by wildlife. So I think what you see now in this region is a better environment in terms of the wildlife densities. But obviously there's other issues going on, like climate change. And, uh, you know, you're seeing you're seeing also a, a retreat in glaciers. You're seeing if you go down to Antarctica, you'll see more moss suggesting more humid, slightly milder climates, just more lichen on the rocks. And certainly in South Georgia, Shackleton definitely wouldn't recognise, for instance, Peggotty Bay Beach, where he, he landed and began his epic traverse of the island, because the glacier there is probably one kilometre inland now from where he first started. So so there has been an extraordinary retreat, which is obviously happening all the world
3: over, yeah. Except it's the canary in the coal mine, isn't it? It's happening there first and fastest, and I'm sure it's incredibly bittersweet to be in such a beautiful place and to be constantly reminded of the fragility of it of it all. But going back to some of the, the other highlight experiences of your trip, one I wanted to dig into a little bit was you mentioned Necco Harbour, which just sounded like a magic... Like I've always wanted to see kind of whales and the, the glaciers carving and all of that. Can you describe that, that experience for us?
2: We had a chance to actually climb up a hillside. Uh, it's quite hard in deep snow, but we managed to get to the top of this hillside and you had this incredible wine glass shaped bay uh, of Necco Harbour. And I was jealous because there were some people who opted not to do the landing. And there were some people who decided to do a, like a cruise on a Zodiac, a mini cruise. And these whales were just popping up all over the place, humpbacks. They're just popping up really close to the boat. And I i, I wished at that time um, I, I could have just ran back down and got on a boat. But,
3: but it was fantastic to watch. What an experience, though, you know, just all around to be there and stand on that, you know, stand on that wild land and look out and and see all that. It's incredible. And you had so many other incredible experiences. Maybe you could, like, pick out one or two along your your journey that really stuck in your mind.
2: Elephant Island was kind of at the top of the Antarctic Peninsula. And obviously, this is this place where Shackleton and his men eventually managed to beach their ships and their three lifeboats. And it's like a mystical rock, as I said. It's got this rugged black looking interior full of icebergs and glacial caps and it, it looks harsh but the beaches are lined with penguins there's strap penguins there kind of really sweet little cute penguin really squat they look like they're wearing like a cap they've got the strap underneath their neck and they were hovering around the beaches where the Shackletons men actually upturned their boats and, and settled down for four and a half months living off penguins and i, I remember thinking wow you penguins don't know how lucky you are because had you been there a hundred years ago you would have been in in a pot of hoosh as they called it um, being eaten so so they, they timed it well but there was a magical experience again i write about in the article that um, as we were we couldn't land because the swell was very very heavy and we just couldn't get a boat to land on the beach at cape wild where the men's uh, bedded down and just as we were getting ready to leave, the captain very skillfully held the boat so we had a chance to look through binoculars at Cape Wild, this small gravelly beach. And just as we were doing that, I saw a, a leopard seal suddenly swim out from the beach and it just came towards us like a torpedo. My spine really tingled. It, it, it felt like we were just about to head off and follow them on this epic 17-day voyage that they took to get the James Caird lifeboat to South Georgia in terrible seas. And it felt like Shackleton and his men were, were escaping the island, just like the leopard seal was doing, um, leaving the beach. It was a very, very eerie and uncanny um, moment. And I think it's such a surreal environment. You've got a lot of these sensations um, of a sort of slightly warped reality. Um, it's so far removed from life. And they're things you just don't see on an everyday basis. And I think it's, it's a very special place. It's very, very atmospheric.
3: Well, it's just been so amazing to talk to you and hear about all this. And, and of course, your journey ended in another eerie place, which is where we our journey started with you today, which is the graveyard of Shackleton as well. And that must have been quite a poignant place to stand and, and share that little whiskey and raise that little toast to the boss. Hmm. That was the end of your trip. What was going through your mind at, at the end of your trip when you were raising that glass?
2: Quidfican, which is kind of the main whaling settlement, um, ex-whaling settlement, is a very haunting and atmospheric place. All the paraphernalia of the whaling industry is still there. It's as though they, they just upped and left. Basically, the whales ran out of the mid-1960s. And firstly, you get that sort of haunting sense of the presence of this devastating industry, But also the the spirit of Shacklin is just hanging over the place from the little white wooden Lutheran church to the graveyard site. And the graveyard site is about a 500-meter walk from the main uh, settlement set on a little promontory overlooking the bay. When I walked over there, there was this drizzle, light sea mist, and the sun was trying to break through. and, And... besides having this feeling that I was in some way really special because of the the industry, this ex-wheeling industry, uh, rusting away, rusting tanks, which were once full of whale oil, and the atmosphere of the light and the mist, and then suddenly this overpowering aurora of just actually um, walking into the cemetery and finally seeing his tomb. There's a number of... uh, It's a small little cemetery surrounded by a, a little fence, and there is a baby... Antarctic fur seals they're always nipping at you on South Georgia uh, they, they've been weaned by this stage and they'll charge at you and uh, they're brave little things but as you, know, so you take one step forward and, and they, they, they back off and, uh, and slide off uh, they're, they're really sweet but there was a, you know there was one of them in nearby as, as I as I raised my toast to it's the culmination of, of a trip is to go to the cemetery and it's a, it's a tradition only Shackardin was a big drinker um, he could certainly put it away. I think all of the men were in that period of time. A, they didn't have internet to browse, etc. And uh, it was just cards, lots of witty banter uh, and whiskey. Those are the days. It's become a tradition to to actually, and most, most voyages you take, they will, they'll bring out a whiskey, a bottle of whiskey and, and pass it around the group.
3: Yeah, fitting end to an amazing trip. And before we go, you've done multiple trips to this region, to Antarctica. For someone that's you know, this is a bucket list trip for so many people, and they maybe only get one shot at it if they're lucky. What would be your, your advice to those, to those people? When, when would you go? What would you do? What should they bring?
2: I think, I mean, I, I mean I'm very conscious. Look, I'm, I'm pretty privileged to, to get an opportunity to go down there on a working capacity. Um, it's very expensive. It's very, very expensive. The South Georgia trip. If you combine South Georgia with Antarctica, it's incredibly expensive. We're looking at, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty thousand pounds for a cabin per person. Mm. These are long trips. But you can do this in a more, more financially less ruinous way. Just going to Antarctic Peninsula, the, the standard, let's say, entry level trip, you can get amazing discounts on. More so at the moment because less people seem to be traveling for obvious reasons. If you want to go to South Georgia and not rack up a huge, huge bill, then there are trips which go and just take in the sub-Antarctic islands, so the Falkland Islands and South Georgia, which again are less expensive. But South Georgia is a little bit out there. It's, it's pretty remote mm. and the, the prices are quite expensive. But I, I would say Antarctic Peninsula is a, is a really great starting place. You'll get all those experiences that you imagine, you know, the penguins and the whales and the albatrosses following the boat and icebergs and, and glaciers and snowy landscapes.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, and quite a bit of history as well. There's, there's including like the, the, the famous British post office, which is down there. So
3: And I also want to mention, because this is a, really an episode for wildlife lovers, that you also have a, a very special campaign which you founded to help and relocate an elephant called Bunker, I believe. Could you tell us a little bit about that and where people can find out more about that too?
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Aaron, for allowing me a a platform to to ramble on about that. Besides loving whales, I I also love elephants. And um, 18 months ago, I found an elephant in a zoo in Armenia, Yerevan Zoo. And this is not an Armenian problem. It's a global issue. Uh, Elephants don't belong in zoos. They suffer extreme physical and psychological torture living in zoos. And this one was in terrible conditions. He's a 15-year-old Asian elephant boy called Bunker. And I've launched a campaign to try and get the Armenians to send him to a sanctuary. And this is happening all over the world. Zoos are giving up their elephants in recognizing this mounting evidence that they don't belong in zoos. And a number of sanctuaries are appearing, including some out here in in Thailand and Laos, where I'm talking from now, which I found a couple of sanctuaries who would take him in, which would be great. But it's a long campaign, B-U-N-K-A, and it's freebunker.com.
3: Thank you for such an incredible interview. And if you want to find out any more about Mark's work or check out all the amazing articles he's written for Wanderlust about places all over the world, he's a regular contributor. You can go to wanderlust.co.uk to find out more. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.
0: Well, that just about wraps up our time here today. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to hit that follow button and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Please also come back for more. We have lots of incredible stories coming up and we just can't wait to share them with you.
1: Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Cheers.
0: This episode of Wanderlust Off the Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalized photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi photo book. The brand has over 9,000 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as the photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars, and much more with CWE. To learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all CeeWee products when you spend £30, visit CeeWee.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's C-E-W-E.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Wonder Last Off the Page was presented by Lynn Hughes and Rosa Fitzgerald. The interviewer was Aaron Miller and the show was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry.